Support for Triloquy comes from Apple Music Classical, an app designed for the nuances of classical music. Listeners can search for the exact recording they want to hear and experience high-res lossless audio up to 192 kilohertz at 24-bit, along with thousands of recordings in spatial audio. Apple Music Classical is included with select Apple Music subscriptions and available now in the App Store. I'm Garrett McQueen, and this is Triloquy. Greetings from my Airbnb in Brooklyn. I think technically I'm in Crown Heights, but shout out to Bed-Stuy. I took a walk the other day and strolled up on this huge block party where I ran into some folks I happen to know. I saw blackness and all of its glory and diversity. I mean, afros of black folklore quality. Shout out to um, Greedy Vegan, where I got some good plant-based food over there. So yeah, things are good here in New York, facilitating earshot readings uh, for the American Composers Orchestra, but glad to be able to come to y'all to uh, present the beginning of season five of this podcast. Uh, Shout out to Scott. If you tuned in to the season four finale, you heard that he stepped down, turning this into more of an interview based show. So every week I'm going to come here to give y'all a little update on what's going on in the world of decolonizing classical music. Uh, I'm going to showcase recent conversations with folks in the field doing some interesting and notable work that's expanding our ideas of this so-called classical music. And uh, of course, I'll throw in a triloquy at the end per tradition. Uh, Just a, a word to say the field is changing. Our lives are changing. Think about who you were back in 2018 or 2019. You were a different person in many ways, I would bet. I know that's the case for me. 2018 Garrett was much thinner, first of all, but you know, far less experienced professionally. I was just sort of doing my thing. And here we are, you know, here we all are doing our own things from, uh, from what we've all been through since then. Well, you know, all of that to say, Triloquy uh, is an example that as well. This show is going to be different, namely much shorter. And let's be honest, that's a good thing for many things, especially some of these concerts, but I'll <laughs> get on that soapbox another day. But anyway, yes, I appreciate y'all going on this ride with me and continuing uh, to do so. Learn more about Triloquy, check out the uh, past opuses and all of that good stuff at triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. So Keith Brown from Interlock and Public Radio up in Michigan uh, gave Triloquy a really nice shout out for our finale. So I thought I'd get this fifth season of Triloquy going by featuring one of our recent conversations. Uh, Keith Brown is an opera singer who found his way to classical radio, and he's been making incredible causes with a streamable (laughs) called Gameplay. It's a, a show celebrating video game music which many of us, you know, have a passion for. Shout out to uh, the homie Jonathan Gibbs. You know, many people uh, really go back in there with uh, video game music. Anyway, you can uh, check out episodes of Gameplay at interlockandpublicradio.org. But to get us into our conversation, I'm going to share a bit of my favorite video game music, at least video game inspired music. Uh, I immediately go to the Final Fantasy franchise when I think about 
really great video game music, I have to be honest. There's so much I'd pick from any of those games for many different reasons, but because I'm here in New York and uh, in a neighborhood with a lot of uh, personality, I want to share something from Nabua Uematsu's catalog that's similar in, in spirit, at least from my perspective. Uh, so in Final Fantasy VII, there's a uh, a sector of town and when you go there the music that's in the background is a tune called oppressed people or the oppressed people um <laughs> you know when i think about the implication of this black sounding reggae inspired y'all will hear it in a second but this you know black music inspired tune getting a title of the oppressed people you know that that's a whole conversation and i get it if anybody gets it i get it trust me but at the end of the day the context of the story and the imagination of the composer, this Japanese composer, uh, to do something like this, I really think it's uh, classic. So I've probably shared this on Triloquy before, I don't remember, but there's a group on YouTube called The Consoles, and, uh, and they do some really great work in putting some classic video game music in a more creative or contemporary context. So I'm going to share their version of this uh, tune, Oppressed People, uh, to get us into my conversation with Keith Brown, host of Gameplay uh, and a host over at Interlocking Public Radio. Hope y'all enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. so embedded in our society now uh it, you know games can be we're in a place now that games can be anything you want them to be games can be games can be yes they can be escapes they can be entertainment they can be detoxing and calming down on the couch you know um playing a farming simulator you know i mean playing some animal crossing but they can all they and and that doesn't diminish that at all but it is games are today they are connection they are family in a lot of ways you know we can speak to that they're they are sustenance and solace for people and it's funny because i'm kind of i feel like i'm i'm a little bit using words that we use in classical radio <laughs> a lot too but um but really i mean i mean that ga games are a solace you know i was thinking about this a lot in you know in 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 the pandemic the beginning of 2020 um the 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 explosion of interest in well perhaps games in general but also in social experiences through games hmm. um animal crossing new horizons i mean it came out 
and I don't remember my timeline specifically, but it came out shockingly close to when everything shut down mm-hmm. and people were just desperate to connect with their friends, to make new friends, to go outside for God's sake, you know, like, and games were there and, and animal crossing provided, you know, as, as just an example, it provided this place where people could feel like they were going outside. They could make something together. They could make friends. They could customize a house. They could play house. You know, they could, they could, uh, uh, they could connect and still have community. Um, and I, you know, it's like, I, I feel like it's hard to overstate the, the power of that for games. So there's games at that level game games are games are gargantuan. I mean, they're money makers on a level that the video game industry is projected in, um, by about in the next several years, maybe by 2026, it's, you know, it's hitting $300 billion globally. You know, it's more money than sports, film. It's it's a tremendous amount of money. Um, and so with that, there's also, there's an unprecedented kind of, it, it's a kind of art that has no precedent. It's interactive art, you know, that you get to play a part of. I think it also has no precedent in the way that it inspires people to learn about art and to interact with it and to maybe enter it as a career as well. So I see a pipeline of, you know, uh, anecdotally young people who decide to take up the piano, the guitar, the Ronroco, we'll talk about a little bit later, you know, like people want to engage with art and it's often through games. So I think there's, um, you know, it's hard to overstate how how embedded they are culturally and and the impact that they can have as an artistic medium as well as entertainment. Like not like those things are <laughs> exclusive from one another, of course, but but they are they're both and everything, you know. Um, so uh yeah, it's it's inspiring to me to see where things are going because there's been such an explosion of of creativity in the space, but there's no sign of it slowing down either. Um, you know, because there's more ways there's more ways now than ever for people to interface with games, to engage with games. You know, you don't you don't have to go to an arcade anymore or, or right. even a barcade, you know, as much fun as that might be. Like, you know, my mom plays Candy Crush on her phone and and then she'll be like, hey, this is surprising this is surprisingly good music. <laughs> sure. And I want to be like, well, yeah, mom, someone made that music. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, yeah. You're, and remind- you're reminding me of COVID's impact uh, and the relationship that people drew to games during that time. It's really mm-hmm. easy for me to tell people, oh, well, I haven't really played video games in, you know, over a decade, but you have sparked that memory during COVID. I really got into Division, you know, and uh, the both of those games. Ooh. And of course, you know, the second game, the the final mission is to storm the Capitol. People did that in real life in 2021. Things got mm-hmm. weird, so I stayed away. But I just, I'd mentioned that, I just highlight that because that is something to think about, the way in which COVID and all of the other events of 2020 really uh, impacted our relationship with that. But of of course, you know, those of us uh, who have been, you know, playing games for a long time, our engagement with video games and even its music, you know, seems at least for me like a foundational part of my experience with the games. My love for music ran in conjunction with 
my love for video game music, you know, just as one aspect of my love for music. I wonder if you have a, a similar story. Was, was your love for music generally a part of your interest in video game music? So, yeah, absolutely, Gary. I, I really connect with you on that. I, I uh, they're kind of inextricable, you know, in my, in my mind, I have, I have um, all kinds of, it's great to think of the formative, um, the memories of, you know, playing games with my dad, uh, <laughs> using the little light pistol thing that came with a Nintendo entertainment system, which I still have in my basement. Oh, good for you. I still have it. Uh -huh. and it still works. Just, just because I look at it and it makes me happy. I know it just goes, ping, you know, <laughs> um, but playing like, okay. So one of the pack-in games, you know, if, uh, one of the most popular uh, cartridges for the Nintendo entertainment system was uh, Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, where you go right. out and like, you you know, uh, but I played with my dad and also these um, memories of of not only Mario, but also Zelda really let the original Legend of Zelda really opened my mind because that was a world that was I mean, that was about that was an experience that was about exploring. It was about getting lost, uh, trying again when you got stuck. Music was such a huge part of that, and and eight bit music, which we'll, we'll, I know we'll get back to because it's a it's a thing that I'm very passionate about a, a world of music that I'm very passionate about is this how how the history of electronic music is woven into the history of games as as a medium. But but yeah, I, it's it's impossible for me not to have games and music be connected. And it goes back to this goes back to the very beginning of the arcade era, you know, uh, in Japan, you know, they had arcades that were entirely devoted to space invaders in the late 70s, you know, and it's like by our modern standard, space invaders might be more of like a descending tetrachord. I don't really know. I mean, there's it's hard to call it a, a soundtrack necessarily, but the attract function of the punchy, colorful, powerful sound of an arcade machine shouting at you, you know, come have fun with me, come engage with me. I mean, that's that is um, I can't separate that. And then, you know, you fast forward through through my life as a gamer. You know, I've had experiences where I was just sitting in my apartment <laughs> by my you know my studio like crying playing games in in you know i i have memories of um i just spoke of just a few weeks ago with gary shyman who wrote the music for uh bioshock the original bioshock and that was a game that had this dark twisted kind of 20th century orchestral dissonant sound and it was world building that that stuck with me and i and i i told him as i say to you now that it, it just has never left me and i i can't not get chills thinking about that main theme and descending into that world um so uh <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i guess i've been a gamer my whole life and and the the kinds of music i'm listening to with those games and the, the way those games are delivered to me have changed dramatically in a lot of ways but um but i don't know there's there's something about uh even playing a game today that that takes me back to the 80s you know there's still something about that and you mentioned 8-bit music 
the reality, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, however you want to look at it, is that that really isn't the sound that the, you know, Gen Zers or Gen Alpha, even younger, associate with playing video games. The sounds that have been uh, utilized through these games are almost like listening to an actual orchestral recording or whatever they want to, well, whatever aesthetic they're going for. Why is it important, in your opinion, to still talk about 8-bit music? Why is that still a relevant conversation? That's awesome. Uh, there's there's so much in that. Um, I think it's that it's very easy, and I, I think this probably gets back to games as a medium too. We're very culturally sus suspicious of games, aren't we? Like it's like the idea of like having fun is frivolous, is to be thrown away. Um, Video games have some things working against them that I try very hard in my own work, uh, in, in our work, to push back against, which is that, um, you know, a toy that we play with, we we tend to be, we have all the agency as, as players of a game or whatever. We can kind of pick up a game, we can engage with it if we want to, we can say, this isn't for me, and we throw it away, and we forget that there are people many people, maybe hundreds of people who worked maybe years of their lives to create that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, yeah, there's there's just so much in that, that idea of, of 8-bit. So games are working against the idea that people think they're frivolous, that they're not useful, that they can't be art. So we're fighting against that. We've also got the idea that like, People think that digital music, music or, or music that is created from a machine is lesser somehow mm -hmm. than a violinist, than Pinka Zuckerman is greater than Koji Kondo creating. And, and that I have a real problem with that. And I struggle with that, have struggled with that. Um, the truth is when we talk, if we're talking about, okay, 8-bit music, Chip music is a word I like to use. I, I don't know what the best term is for it because that term has been co-opted. It's been used in different ways. It means many things. But when I'm talking about 8-bit music, like the music of the Nintendo Entertainment System, let's say, five channels of possible sounds that can be used, three melodic channels, a noise channel. There's a sample channel as well. The noise channel can make the sound, you know, in different durations you know but composers at that time through enormous effort were able to create actually shockingly intricate music um and these are human beings that 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 worked on a level that we don't often acknowledge uh, we rarely acknowledge and and i i I really am passionate about acknowledging this this work um you know in in the early days we forget about this there were days before MIDI keyboards, you know, uh, long before you could sit down at a keyboard that was interfaced with a computer and you could just start writing stuff. In the early days, let's talk about the mid 80s, early mid 80s with the Nintendo Entertainment System, you know, a composer had to know assembly language. You had to have coding to be able to translate your music into code into to engage a chip to play your sounds and you have a very limited number of voices that can even sound at the same time. 
So we tend to think, I think societally, we tend to think that electronic stuff, electronic sounds, that we dehumanize them. We say like, it's like, well, just the machine did that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, the machine did that, whatever. And I, I, I have so many like beloved colleagues that that I work with who are who are lifelong classical musician, classical musicians. I'm I'm air quoting, you know, uh, and and wonderful musicians who, when I talk to them about electronic music, you can tell that it's set kind of over here. And I want to be like, you know, there, people people created waveforms with immense care. The amount of effort that it took to make even one pitch sound for one second was huge in those days. So then you listen to the way that these artists, uh, foundational artists, many of whom were women, by the way, uh, created these sounds, created whole ecosystems of music. Uh, we need to we need to be celebrating and acknowledging that that care uh, and and how and how they were able to take limitations and transcend them. Uh, in really profound ways, uh, you know, it's like I often think about this. Uh, there are <laughs> there are communities of uh, musicologists, you know, who study game music, ludo musicologists, that, and uh, I have a group that I've I've been with on on Twitch that I, I've talked about, and we just you know they they play incredible music, play games, and nerd out about the music. And these are people that I mean, they have you know they're musicologists, they have this this deep knowledge and i and i've talked about how i'm like you know i love the harpsichord which is a polarizing instrument for a lot of classical listeners i love the harpsichord i love it uh and they talk about how they're like oh you know you'll find a surprising number of harpsichord stands among game music love people that love chip music there's an immediacy to that sound but also think about the you know the domenico scarlatti's of the 18th century are playing with a harpsichord that does not you can't make it louder. It doesn't matter how hard you bang on it. It's it's kind of limited. So composers were got creative to right. find ways to be like, how am I going to make it louder? How am I going to create dynamic and texture? Uh, similarly, I mean, there's really not that big a leap between that and then co a composer working with um, a couple of melodic voices and trying to, how do I create, how do I squeeze the most intricate contrapuntal or whatever, the, the catchiest tune I can uh, the the rocking is tune out of just what I have available to me. That's there's something beautiful about that. Um, so yeah, so so I guess that's a oh, sorry that's a very uh, circuitous uh, way of saying that. I, I think that um, we just need to be reminded that there are human beings creating this art um, who are who who are bringing a rich life experience to their work and come on, you know, electronic instruments have existed for over a century. Bernard Herrmann was putting theremin in uh, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And we still have opposition from people that are like, oh, electronic instruments, I don't know. When you talk about celebrating the people behind this music, what comes mm -hmm. to mind for me is the fact, you mentioned the name Koji Kondo. If I walk down the street and say his name, I imagine not many people would know what I'm talking about. If I walk down the street, humming the Super Mario theme, most people could probably hum along with me. I wonder what you think is uh, what you attribute to that separation. There, there's these canonized, if we're going to use this word, there's a canonized uh, uh, collection of 
video game music pieces that just are cultural at this point that people know. But the people who created those sounds, the people who created those pieces, don't share that same fame or that same broad recognition. I, I wonder if you've ever thought about what is in the middle of of of, of those two things. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think it does. This speaks to this idea of of maybe it speaks partly to the idea of, of you know, we think of this as a toy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just this thing I play with. Um, yeah. As ubiquitous culturally as as things like Super Mario Brothers and stuff have become. Yeah, I mean, the the composers that created the music, um, the, the visual artists, the designers don't usually get centered it's just like it's almost as if the game has sprung into being somehow from somewhere and then we get to kind of we get to laugh and and have a good old time with it um yeah i you know another thing that one thing that kind of works against this i you know i would say that oh it's it's hard to say because i it's it's i'm speaking a little generally here but in in the world of it I spend a fair amount of time, you know, doing research online for for my work about um, various Japanese composers who worked on, class, you know, let's say classic, what you know, in game in game terms, retro games, you know, people that worked for Capcom, Konami, whatever in the eighties. A lot of a lot of, if we're speaking about Japan, excuse me, a lot of times um, the names uh, there there was a, a team approach that was adopted in a lot of composition. And I think for a number of reasons that I don't even know all the nuances of, but partly just they would obscure the names of individual people. Um, I think partly as a, there's, I think there's an element of protect of a protective measure in there, but there's also an idea of, of people working as a team. You will see scores that are still attributed to Sega sound team. Mm -hmm. Sega sound team created this. Okay, well, that was on this particular game. That was five composers, by the way. You know, four of them were women, and and we don't know their names except by the people, you know, fans and and experts that do research online and post this stuff nowadays. Um, so there's a, maybe there's an element too of of that some of those early games that were getting all this traction, your Sonics, your Mar, you know, your Mario's, your Zeldas, uh, maybe they were a little bit obscured. Uh, to some to some degree, maybe maybe by design by the people that even made the game, um, but yeah, I, there's there's a lot to talk about in there. Um, but but I think yeah, we tend I, I feel like with entertainment and and with games specifically, we don't tend to think about the people that gave of themselves mm -hmm. to create that thing. But it's like you know. This game, whatever, this card game, this this role-playing game, this digital game, it didn't come into existence without people designing it, without people asking hard questions about what's fun to play and and how do we and how do we make this a a, a broader holistic experience with music and sound, you know. Um, we just think it's just uh oh, whatever, it's just here. It's a stuffed animal in a toy store, or it's uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I there seem to be some degrees of separation there that that I'd love to continue to break down because um you know the humanizing that happens when you talk about a person who made a thing and what their life was like and what kind of music they listened to when they were a kid and and what what were their struggles and what were their 
triumphs and stuff. I don't know. There's, it's like, as soon as you start to think about that, the person behind digital sprites on a screen leaps off that screen, you know, and, and you, you, you identify with them. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's super important. And I, I think it's out there that thinking is out, is out there, but, um, but I, I feel like sometimes it's, it's people that are more dialed into the musical culture of games already. Um, I'd like to see it reach a broader, you know, a broader thing, that halo theme that everybody loves or whatever, you know, somebody, a person created that mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, yeah, then there's something there's just something beautiful about telling those stories. It's it goes back to it's like why we it's like that I'm I'm a you know radio host and producer and so I'm on the air every day and and you're always asking those questions about what do I I need to lift up something about this piece to make it more than just a thing in B flat minor. Right. You know, <laughs> a lot of people don't care about B flat minor. They don't they'll never care about that. But uh but there's something about like this quartet or something or or this pianist has a cool story maybe or or whatever and you know koji kondo cool a cool story cool story about koji kondo by the way uh uh i wonder if you know this uh, original legend of zelda theme uh zelda theme um okay it has this kind of bolero-ish kind of uh it has this kind of a bouncy, you know, we're we're going off to adventure, riding on horses. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a. Uh, he originally wanted to use Ravel's bolero, as the ground as the theme for for Legend of Zelda, and he found much to his panic, that it was not in the public domain mm. yet in 1986. So he had to write, on very short notice, a new theme. Which of course has become an iconic theme, but it but it kind of sits in that. I mean, bolero is of course a, a bolero through the through the lens of a, a French person, but it's also it's funny just just to think about that to me that <laughs> he was under pressure and uh, had to crank this thing out. Interesting that you bring that up because you know the the first composer of video game music whose name I could just say. Uh, was Nobuo Uematsu when I really got into playing Final Fantasy. My my mom, you know, I'll I'll back up a little bit. You know, when I was a little kid and the first Final Fantasy was popular, my mom loved the game. So th that's really how I got introduced to that franchise in particular. I jumped on um, when they put out Final Fantasy VII, when it jumped to uh, PlayStation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the first things that I think about now when I think about uh, those scores and, and that music is the fact that you have this Japanese composer who must have the world view or the uh, knowledge of music to really infuse all types of not only sounds, but cultures into the score. I think mm -hmm. about uh, the oppressed people in, in, the, in, the, in the soundtrack of Final Fantasy VII that's very reggae inspired. If you go yeah. up to uh, Final Fantasy VIII, you know, one of my favorite cuts is called uh, The Spy. It's very funk themed very you know low bass and and that sort of thing it's just really incredible music you know and it seems to me that uh video game music while it may seem like its own corner in itself is a window into a world of aesthetic and a, and a world of just approaches to composition yeah uh a thousand percent garrett i mean like 
Yeah, you talk about, oh yeah, Uematsu as an example, a composer who didn't really have a lot of formal training in music, really, I mean, basically none, as I understand it, but grew up with this love of all of these genres. I mean, Uematsu, I mean, my God, just as one composer as an example, you have a, a composer who who loves sweeping melodies of Tchaikovsky. Well, I'm, I'm about, oh, I got to tell you something about, about, Uematsu, about Uematsu that you're going to love too. Speaking of cross, uh, just kind of cross-pollination of musical ideas. He loves, uh, he loved Simon and Garfunkel. He loved progressive rock. He has a group uh, called the Earthbound Papas. It's a, re a reference to the uh, a beloved uh, Japanese role-playing game, a whimsical game called Earthbound. Yeah. Uh, he has, so he, he plays prog rock, like, like American, like, you know, that that kind of fusion sound. He also loves Celtic music. He loves um, Bach. And actually, you know, the the uh, you and you may have heard this, that uh, Final Fantasy six is particularly a feast musically. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. There's but the opera in it, isn't there? If I remember. Yeah, there's exactly exactly. I mean, he this is he loves opera and he does an opera scene. But also the there's a finale um, which has been orchestrated with fabulous singers and a giant chorus and stuff, uh, incredible recording. Um, and, you know, the final boss of Final Fantasy VI is this like, he's this like twisted, he's this just, Kefka has become a god and he's destroyed the world, you know? And his theme has its orchestra, its chorus going like the Verdi Requiem, and then everybody cuts off and it's Bach with an organ. It's like diabolical organ music. And then the prog rock band kicks in and now we're like in Pink Floyd land. What are we, you know, and then it all comes back together. That's, that is the kind of, um, it's like, and I see this, I, I will say that I, this is probably true of, of all game composers nowadays. They, they have all of these colors that they can bring into their palette. But I also see even in much earlier in Japan, I would see artists that are, are, I affirm all of this as classical music there, but they are bringing in colors that a lot of like Western classical composers are still, still resistant to kind of incorporate into their music. And, you know, in, in the 80, in the eighties and early nineties, there were Already there were video game music festivals happening in Japan and game developers, you may know this, but game, game development companies like your uh, like Capcom uh, or whatever, or Sega, they would have in-house bands that played all music from their titles. Mm -hmm. and these festivals and, and the music, guess what? The music that was popular in Japan, hugely popular was um, hip hop, rock, funk soul uh uh jazz jazz and jazz fusion was huge in japan it had a huge influence on japanese popular music you know and that fed the birth of game music as kind of a world um and i, I don't know i uh there are a lot of composers that that just seem willing to and and, and happy to bring in any color of any genre and and kind of pay homage to it in their music and and celebrate it um and as a result i i do think that in games you see a celebration of 
you just see a celebration of colors of music um, that I I don't see in any other media. I mean, there's no other medium that I know of where you would hear Bach and progressive rock and some kind of giant orchestral thing happening in the same piece. I mean, not even, not only the same score, the same piece. And um, that's just so exciting to me. Uh, it's so, and, and believe me, I mean, it's my job to listen to this stuff and to study it and, and, and hunt for it every day. I'm constantly being, it's like every day I, I somebody shares something uh, that just kind of blows my mind. You know, it's like, there's madrigals that send up 16th century madrigals that are composed for video games. There are, there's prog rock, there's J-pop and fusion, there's hip hop, there's Fela Kuti, there's, there's, you know, Tchaikovsky, there's uh, Dvorak, you know, it, it just goes on forever. And um, I, I find that tremendously enriching about, about, um, about game music in general. Yeah. There's, there just seems to be a willingness to embrace musical colors, genres, um, and use them as like paints in a paintbrush or, uh, uh, uh on a palette. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you can talk about how your own personal, uh, love and dedication to this music translates to gameplay. How was this show born and, and what has it been like, uh, getting to, spend your time with on your job listening and thinking about and sharing all of this music with so many people it's been such a thrill man i mean i like a lot of us you know my background i mean my background is as i started as a trumpet player i, I started a conservatory in cincinnati as a trumpet performance major i grew up playing a lot of uh, uh orchestral music band music i'm a band guy i love band music i love jazz um and then I became an opera singer and focused on that for almost 10 years. So, wow. uh, yeah, so I was I was really like on stage. And for a, for a long time, that's what I thought that was going to be my focus. And I do feel like, you know, when I was a kid, I listened to I had I had very different sounds of music. You know, I'm a metalhead, too. So I, I listened to uh really wild different stuff when I was a kid. And I do feel like when I, you know, I got to school to, to music school, to conservatory. And I feel like I was, I had a sense that there was never a sense of like, Oh, I need to put this kind of music aside. But there was a sense of like, if I want to be serious about being an opera singer, I need to like really focus on this, mm -hmm. you know? And I really felt like that. Like I, I was surround, I was steeped in that, you know, that, that conservatory culture of, of going to orchestra, excuse me, going to orchestra concerts all the time and hearing kind of, you know, hearing stuff that excited me. I was always about all about that 20th century, I, the, the crunchier, the better for me. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I, I guess long story uh, longer, I uh, ended up, I ended up in, in Michigan here um, and at, at Interlock and Center for the Arts, which is this incredible kind of multidisciplinary world to be in, I found myself, uh, uh, I had actually, to be honest, I had been interested in radio for a long time. I had been, I had uh, started my kind of voiceover career path back when I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. And then I 
but it wasn't until I was starting to find more and more time between gigs and needing to kind of engage in different ways, you know, as, as when I was here that I started to, I, my kind of voiceover path and I do a lot of audiobook narration and stuff, things like that, some commercials and stuff and corporate narration. I do that on the side. And then I are along with uh, being introduced to the radio and I just kind of like met the right people. I always assumed I needed special degrees and, you know, all this other training to be in radio. And it turned out that people were like, no, you, you're, you're a musician with training and you, you can learn the tech, like it doesn't matter. And, and uh, so I ended up here at, at Interlock and public radio, you know, one of the original uh, <laughs> NPR stations, and it's a, a wonderful place to work. And I got, you know, I, I, I started here as a part-time host. I was like a fill-in and Somewhere as I started to get more and more engaged with like regular hosting during the week, I had my our executive director heard me going on at some meeting uh, about at a classical meeting about how I had read an article. And I, I think it was from New York Times. I can't remember what it was, but I uh, at all now, but I was going on passionately uh, about an article that I read about game music and how it was packing people into concert houses, you know, into into, into these spaces that have been struggling to bring people in. And I was going on about, oh, there's, you know, you don't even know what kind of great music there is. We already had some of it, a little bit of it in our broadcast library. But I was like, man, I really want to get more. There's, I mean, you should hear this thing. And he just said, he just stopped me and said, like, could you make a show about this? Like, could you do a show, a weekly show? And I was like, you know, my heart, like, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but I but I was also like, you know, I had been thinking as a, as a radio host, I was like what's another thing that I can do to give to make something. People I know there's lots of people that are producers, they find a thing, you know, they 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 create content and I didn't know what it would be and it was sort of like the greatest gift to me that that he said, "Hey, because then it it gave me this excuse to reconnect with a whole side of my life that I, you know, that I had kind of cut off or I hadn't engaged with in a lot of years. Um, as soon as I started listening to game soundtracks uh, and, and being like, okay, let's let's get a sense of where the where is the world now? Where where is and let's look back into the history. And I suddenly realized that I was woefully. I, I needed to become far more well versed in styles of music and sounds that I had not studied formally. Wow. I hadn't engaged with for many years. Um, and I was like, I can't, I can't be listening to this music and and purporting to be some kind of uh, well versed person if I don't listen to jazz fusion music and if I don't listen to if I've never really you know engaged deeply with this style of music or that. And you know, games led me to hip hop. They led me to um, I, I you know I mentioned to you I I was led to uh, I've always been a jazz lover of of every form I've ever encountered, but I had never encountered acid jazz. And it was like right around the time I was, in, I was mixing, I was like getting into like hip hop artists and reconnecting with like jazz and rock and funk. And it was like all these things mixing together and it just lit me up. And, and uh, so I feel like actually, in a in a way, this, this journey has been such a gift because it has enriched my perspective on the stuff that I, you know, that I grew up with in such a way. Um, I feel like it's like this cross pollination or something where I feel like my appreciation of each thing has grown 
you know, because of this work. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, 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 you can probably tell I, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great joy to work on this stuff because, um, you know, it gives me this excuse to, to indulge kind of an endless curiosity about music. I, you know, I just can't imagine ever not being curious and the field is so huge today and getting huger <laughs> that I can't imagine exhausting my curiosity. And, and I get to ask myself questions, you know, uh, like what does this, you know, what could, what kind of music could fit with this world? What kind of music could fit with this world? And, uh, it's all affirmed through the, through the lens of game music. That's another beautiful thing about this work is that, you know, we have, we're, we affirm this as classical music, you know, this is modern classical, but then through that, I sort of get to cheat and say, look, so we're going to be listening to orchestral music. Yes. But we're also going to be listening to some, you know, I listen, this electro funk music, this electro, whatever, you know, or, or, whatever it is this this uh soundscape composed out of the sounds of paint rollers or whatever you know it can be anything uh and there's something so um that just opens the mind uh in, in such an invigorating way about that and it's not to say that there's no resi i mean obviously there's i'm working hard to go against resistances there we still are being resisted in film music you know there are still people that will there are still people that that have a problem with playing corn gold or something on the radio, <laughs> you know. So there there is that, but I, I just um, yeah, it is so it is so invigorating to 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 study this um, just the array of colors that there are, you know, in the medium. Do you think it's a culture shift that we need to engage when we talk about that resistance? When I think even beyond video game music on the radio. Every time it's concertized, every video game concert that I've played has been completely sold out. Audiences are so engaged by it. I'm sure that you have a lot of very loyal fans, you know, that tune into to gameplay. So for me, the argument can't be it's not viable. It's not uh, uh, fiscally sound. It seems like there's there's something else, just a general culture shift that will get this music out of the margins and more to the center of what we think about when we think about an orchestral concert, when we think about uh, classical radio and, and all of the uh, mediums through which Western classical music has always lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so that's so cool, by the way, just side er, side note that you played game that you've played game concerts. That's so awesome. Well, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. You know, I have I have you know, uh, colleagues here too, that talk about like having played, uh, you know, they, that they showed up, uh, <laughs> the, my favorites are the ones where they show up and they had, they just had no idea what they were in for. You know, uh, I have a colleague that was relating a story about playing a concert of Pokemon music and he had no particular predis, you know, he had, he, he had no preconceived notions necessarily, but I don't think he expected the rock concert, like, yeah, reception <laughs> that he got. Yeah. Yeah, I um so that's that is awesome. And I think um yeah, you know, there's a cultural shift that I I actually think it is happening, but there is a lot more that still needs to happen. And this this I, I get kind of a uh, a cross section of this because I the show by virtue of its syndication and the fact that you know, the fact that it's a broadcast show but people can stream, I get people that are Kind of what you know, what you think of as uh, 
you know, classical listeners who've been who are kind of the core that have been listening for a long time. They have a, many of whom have a predisposition, or they have a pre, um, yeah, they have pre, a preconceived notion about this is what classical music sounds like. This is what it is. So I have some of these folks who are listening, but I also have very very young people who aren't necessarily being fed that same line of thinking. And I get both of them as a cross section and, and all in between are listening. Um, yeah, I, I just. People love to put things in boxes and to be like this, you know, I've decided what. I've decided what good music is, and it's this and it's Bach. Um, it frustrates me a lot, and I know it frustrates a lot of people uh, it frustrates you i know uh it's <laughs> it's um yeah we run up we run up against it where it's just like and i found this in my own work to be honest i had to confront this myself it's like you when you put it under a microscope and you start to ask yourself why have i been telling myself this kind of music is is better than this kind of music or why have i been focusing on this kind of music right you you start to look you try to pull back the curtain and you realize there's nothing there's nothing here what what really matters you know what does the music does this move you does it connect with you in some way i had to ask myself those questions about about even styles of music that were not that i was not i didn't even grow up listening to and yeah i think there's a there is a like a cultural shift that that needs to happen and is happening um where yeah where like the idea of something that's written for a game is seen as so frivolous it's seen as so small it's it's you know we've got people that write about eternity right you know and and you've got Mahler you know but then it's like there are ga games there are as I said there are games that serve every experience there are games that are just about beauty there are games that are just about exploring your mind your own mind space the games that have nothing to do with what people stereotypically think of a game as like twitch skills with a you know blasting people or jumping over blocks incredibly precisely that's super fun but there are also games that are about you know there are games that are literally about breeding like like bringing empathy to another person's experience like there's a whole there's like a there's like a world of of kind of I don't know if this is the right term, but they're kind of called empathy games hmm. that are about, I mean, they're created to be, to be, because there's a sense of ownership when you're playing the experience that is really powerful and profound. And I don't think has ever been approximated in any other medium. It's interactive. You're part of the art. Now you're, you are the arranger. You're making decisions that affect the score, you know, uh, one of my past guests was um, uh, the wonderful Austin Wintry, who was the first composer to be nominated for a Grammy for video games back before there was such a thing as a category for it for best score. And it was for a game called Journey. And the game is you cannot even speak to another character, to another person. There is no acts of violence in this particular game. It's about exploring. It's meditative. It's being lost in the desert. Uh, and people... You know, some of the most gratifying responses that I get about the show are are often sometimes they're not from gamers. They're from people that they're from 
okay, maybe older folks that are saying like, I assumed games were like this. I had no idea that people wrote music like this, you know, that fit into that fit into more of an aesthetic that I'm familiar with or whatever, or that, or that bridged a gap. Um, I, I just think people need to be shown this stuff. They need to be, it needs to be curated for them maybe, but it needs to be, you know, the humanity, if, if the humanity behind it is lifted up, people lose their preconceived notions about it. And they're willing to just take one more little step into a, digital world or whatever as it might be and that i feel like that one step is enough because people go whoa i didn't know you know i didn't know that there was music like that someone wrote music like that or music that responds to my actions and and changes and reorchestrates itself as as austin's score for journey literally does it's like you are a cello soloist and you are when you encounter this mountain over here, a bass flute enters the score and never leaves again, but it's going to happen at a different time than another player. And that's, it, it makes it like a game is your experience. And that's, that's really profound. And I think can, I think can break barriers uh, that, that perceived barriers around music. Um, so, yeah, I, I suspect more of these, elect, like we talked about with electronic sounds and stuff, I suspect as more young people grow up with these sounds nowadays, young people are um, they're interfacing with a retro aesthetic, like, like some, there are games that come out now that are popular that call upon a retro aesthetic and they use chip sounds as like a color. And yeah. And I know that people understand what that is. It's like, Oh yeah. It's like they're, they're, sure. it's the yeah. sound of, an, you know, Scott Pilgrim or what, you know, this is, this is an old game. I get it. So I think that those that all of these sounds are becoming more embedded uh, with with time and more acceptance and familiarity will come um, and even nostalgia. But uh, man, yeah, it's it's uh, wow. I really went off there for a while. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned people taking that step into this new world for, for the people who are uh, curious about taking that step. How can they check out gameplay? Well, um, the best place to do that is uh, you can go to gameplayshow.org. That's our website. Um, and you can stream all the past episodes of the show there. Um, and of course, you can listen to to classical IPR. There's a, we have we're fortunate to have syndicated partners in New York City and and Alaska and Kansas and you know, Northern California, you know, kind of all over the place. But uh but if if you aren't going to catch it on a on a live broadcast, that's the place to go. Uh, so gameplayshow.org and uh, and you can also follow um, classical IPR on Instagram for a period for updates on all the things that we do. But gameplay is in the mix there as well, uh, and that's at classical IPR in Interlock and Public Radio. Great, thank you. Well, the the final thing I'll ask, uh, you know, where where would you uh, send people? who have never engaged video game music. You know, I've talked with people who live in the hip hop world and I say, you know, for people who have never listened to rap music, where where should they start? I wonder what your answer is to that question from the video game music perspective. Oh man, that's awesome. I love that. It's actually one of my favorite questions to answer because I well what I usually ask is what is the person <laughs> what is the person in question already like? I guess Oh man. Um oh here, here we go. 
if if a listener loves um choral music or like if a listener loves something like uh that you might hear a lot on a classical station like Rafe von Williams check out a composer named Jessica Curry British composer has written some uh BAFTA winning music there's a game called Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and she deliberately channels Duraflay and Rafe von Williams London Voices is the ensemble that records it oh my god it's beautiful uh Jessica Curry's music, you can't go wrong. Uh, go look at, um, Aust I mentioned Austin Wintry earlier, look up the soundtrack to a game called Journey. And there's another one that's called Abzu, A-B-Z-U. That's about a sea exploration game. And you'll you'll get your, there's, there's gamelan, harp, beautiful voices and string orchestra. So there's that world as well. Uh, <laughs> but I'm like, I want to be like, name another musical aesthetic and I'll, I'll direct you in a game soundtrack direction. there from the video game Abzu music by Austin Wintry that track is titled their waters were mingled together <laughs> huge thanks to Keith Brown for joining me so uh, grateful to all of the work that he's doing and uh, all of the work that he's doing to pull in people who already love video game music into this world of so-called classical and people who are already in it, exposing them to a broader perspective on so-called classical music. Really great work. Be sure to check out gameplay again at interlockandpublicradio.org. All right, well, I have a short little triloquy to offer this week. We're going to get into it. I'm going to stick with the video game music theme, uh, but tie it in with percussion since I'm talking about a uh, percussionist. So this is a little battle music from uh, Final Fantasy VII as performed by the percussion ensemble here from the No Limit Orchestra. Check it out and uh, we'll talk on the other side.
All right. Well, if you've been keeping up with your classical news, you have probably heard about the situation with Joshua Jones. So Josh is a percussionist, a world-class percussionist, certainly one of the greatest in the country, uh, who's recently been working with the Kansas City Symphony. Uh, so if you don't know, similar to academia in the orchestral world, you're usually given a few years and then uh, the orchestra decides if they want to keep you, if you get tenure or not. Well, Josh Jones was denied tenure uh, from his job at the Kansas City Symphony. I could go into you know, his personal life and why he needs this job, the health care of it all. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's neither here nor there. Uh, the Black Opera Alliance got involved and uh, put together a really huge campaign to try to save Joshua Jones's job. I mean, he had him on the news. The social media campaign has been something else. And honestly, with all of the noise that was being made, I actually had a little bit of hope. But, you know, I also think back to my own situation when I was dismissed from Minnesota Public Radio. I mean, the uh, the petitions that people signed and the news stories. But at the end of the day, they were unbudged as at least as I'm taping this uh, has uh, the, the Kansas City Symphony has been unbudging as well. What do I take from this? What's my message? Well, it's sort of twofold and i have two minds about it first and foremost i love and support josh jones i mean he's a he's like a brother he's one of the uh or black orchestral musicians out here we need who's really uh doing his part to change the landscape so i want him to be involved i want him to be happy i want him to have the gig that he wants to have at the same time i want him to be somewhere where he's wanted we have to remember that it's not just higher up orchestral administration people who make these decisions. These are Josh's colleagues uh, and the conductor who at the end of the day decided that they don't want him leaving their orchestra without a black person, at least not as much as I know. And again, please forgive the, the city sounds uh, out there if you can hear any of that. Um, so, yeah, we have to go where we're wanted. I don't understand uh if I'm going to be honest, this continued push for us to be in these institutions that don't want us, I think is inequitable. I think um, it really showcases where the industry is. Uh, I, I've said it on social media a lot at this point, and I'll say it here. Shaming these or uh, institutions is no longer going to work. And quite honestly, the Kansas City Symphony could be any orchestra. It could be any number of ensembles out there that we're talking about, but they just don't care. The The public outcry doesn't matter to them. The advocacy doesn't matter to them. At the end of the day, they made their decision. And I think it's time for us to make ours. Um, there have been uh, musicians who um, have not pulled out, who have just continued on with what they're doing with the organization. I think there's something there to be considered. Um, from my end, it looks pretty silent on the case of the Kansas City Symphony musicians. I mean, if we were talking about a cut and pay or something else, people would be out in the streets. But from my perspective, this just seems like another day at work for these folks. And uh, they aren't too terribly concerned about Josh Jones and what he need. So um, I think we got to think about uh, building our own. I think we have to think about doing what we can within the institutions. And if we don't aren't wanted any, we aren't wanted there anymore, we just got to do our own thing. I think it was James Baldwin who says you got to get up from the table when love is no longer being served. Well, love is no longer being served at the Kansas City Symphony. 
I'm not here to tell anyone what to do, but I'm saying if it were me, it would be hard for me to go buy a ticket to hear that ensemble play. It would be hard for me to not call um, offices to let my voice be heard. Uh, I would probably call the local radio station and say, look, don't play this orchestra's music. They've proven not to do well by black folks, at least not this one black person, Joshua Jones. And I'm not here to disparage. I'm not here to, you know, mudsling or do any of that. But what I am here to do is just help put on people's radars, the status quo that is being maintained. We talk about how few black people there are in orchestra spaces and classical music spaces. This organization not only had the opportunity to tenure a black musician, but to tenure one of the best black musicians there are out there. I mean, we tied for the fellowship that I did with the Detroit Symphony years ago. I could go on and on about Josh Jones, but the institutions have spoken. Now it's time for us to speak. They've made themselves clear. What's our move? I hope you'll think about that. Thanks so much for tuning in. I will see y'all next week.